Hey, Vince McMahon, it's time for this week's Stick to Wrestling podcast. For the undisputed WWF Championship, including Jake the Snake Roberts, the Barbarian, the model Rick Martel, the Berserker, Rowdy Roddy Piper, Hacksaw Jim Duggan, Nasty Boy Sags, Repo Man, Sergeant Slaughter, alleged real-world champion Ric Flair, Hercules, Colonel Mustafa, the Macho Man Randy Savage, Skinner, the British Bulldog Baby Boy Smith, the Million Dollar Man Ted DiBiase, Haku, Shawn Michaels, the Warlord, El Matador, Sid Justice, IRS, Nikolai Volkov, the Texas Tornado, Virgil, the Undertaker, the Big Boss Man, Greg the Hammer Valentine, Superfly Snooker, and the Immortal Hulk Hogan. It's time to rumble! It's time for the Royal Rumble! She's in love with the Stick to Wrestling podcast, and I feel fine. I want to thank the Beatles for writing that song about their favorite podcast, Stick to Wrestling. Or if you give us 60 minutes, perhaps indeed, we'll give you a wicked good and a raw bone podcast. My name is John McAdam, and I invite you to join our Facebook group. It's a really cool, informative, and opinioned site, and we'll talk more about that later. If you would like to follow me on Twitter, my buddy Jace Nacarado says I was kind of hyperactive on Twitter this weekend. Just search John McAdam, follow the guy who has Morocco and Moondog Maine fighting with chairs. I was busier than usual on Twitter this weekend because I made a couple of really cool new friends there, and one of them has already accepted an invitation to be on the show. He'll be on soon. I also want to thank Christopher Cox, Mark Rollins, and Anthony Osiello for their generous contributions to the Stick to Wrestling podcast. If you would like to contribute, Just get on PayPal and donate to Pro Wrestling Archives, all one word, at gmail.com. I want to read what Anthony had to say. Considering how much I enjoy the podcast, this is long overdue. I think your wrestling fandom has a five-year start on mine, so I love your late 70s WWF content as well as the territory stuff. Also sending appreciation for running a civil Facebook page and two fantasy leagues which is an impressive accomplishment. Thank you, Anthony. And I'm all about impressive accomplishments. Uh, Let me see one thing before we get rolling. I want to thank our guest and thank Lou Kippelman for being patient. We were supposed to record Sunday night. And long story short, there was a uh, pipe burst about two, 250 feet away from where I record. There was heavy equipment being used and it was just too noisy to record. I said, guys, can we do it on Monday? And they both were very cool about it. Yeah, sure, we'll do it on Monday. And Monday, more of the same, except worse. It was even louder. And they agreed to record tonight. So both of them reserved three nights to do one night of recording. And I'm very grateful to both of them. And with that, I want to bring on for his maiden voyage, his first time on Stick to Wrestling, it's Mr. Disco himself, Chris Berg. Chris, thanks for coming on. Hey, guys. How's it going? Going great as of right now. (laughs) We actually, we had more bumps in the road because, well, I've had 
what's the word I'm looking for? My uh, voice kept going on and off. Like the my, my connection wasn't good. So hopefully in the next like 60 or so minutes, we'll be problem for free, Chris. <laughs> I hope so. I hope so. Knock on wood. But anyway, uh, this podcast comes out on January the 22nd. And the day before that marks the 30th anniversary of the 1992 Royal Rumble. Both Chris and I rewatched it. And Chris, I mean, how many times have you watched it now? How many times have I watched it? I think this is the first time I actually watched the whole thing beginning to end. Okay. So, yeah, I watched it when it first came out. I watched the Rumble itself, you know, more than once over the last 30 years. And I watched the event twice over the past, I don't know, week or so just to get into review mode. But uh, one thing about this show, I really regret not going. It was on a Sunday where there was no NFL football. Albany is like two and a half hours away from where I live, probably even less time because there's, you know, there's no traffic on Sunday. Uh, I have never been to a WWF pay-per-view, which is kind of weird because I went to a bunch of NWA pay-per-views. Chris, have you ever gone to a WWF pay-per-view? I've never been to a WWF pay-per-view. In fact, the first pay-per-view I ever went to was just a couple months ago, AEW Full Gear at Target Center. Nice. I almost went to a WWF pay-per-view on your stomping grounds. I think it was the 2000 Royal Rumble. A friend of mine uh, had his workplace, had a suite, and he's like, you know, there's plenty of room. Why don't you come down? And initially I said, yes, I'm like, yeah, I'll do that. And then I thought about it. I'm like, look, it's in January, getting from Boston (laughs) to Minneapolis and back. Forget it. I mean, I know I was going to get stuck at least once. Yeah, it's not really the time of year you want to come visit here. (laughs) Actually, I, I would like to experience that incredible cold you guys have out there. I've been told that July is the only month that it has never snowed in St. Paul, Minneapolis. Now, think about that. I think it's the only month it hasn't ever snowed in Minnesota, but I don't know that it's ever really snowed like July, August in the cities here, up north probably. I don't know. Maybe it's just a high school rumor someone told me many moons ago. But, yeah, we'll talk about the the, the Royal Rumble. I mean, I can't believe 30 years went by so fast, but, one thing you had mentioned, uh, they've got, a, what, a 19 or an 18,000 seat arena in Albany, New York. What's up with that? Well, I was thinking, I wonder if it was like some sort of a mob deal. Somebody greased someone's palms. I, I don't know. It just doesn't make a lot of sense for a city of about 90,000 to have a arena nearly the size of the garden. Wait a minute. We're, 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 we're thinking about mob involvement in New York state politics now, now. And construction, that would never happen. <laughs> no, that would never happen. I mean, Albany has like a minor league hockey team. I, I know they at one point had a minor league basketball team. But yeah, 18,000 seems a little extreme for a city in a metropolitan area that size. Yeah, but they sold it out for this event. So it did. They sold it out. And I was a little bit surprised. But, you know, then again, it's it's Albany. It's a premium event. And they just didn't get too many of those. And I guess the other thing that kind of struck me is, I mean, they don't have the entrance ramps and all the blocked off seats like they do now. I mean, it was pretty much a legitimate sellout. 
It looked like, yeah, it definitely was. I mean, I was looking around at the seats, which is a, a habit of mine to see if, you know, they're, they're tarped or they're, they're, you know, the, the production team makes them look dark and no, everything was light and every seat was filled. Good for them. Opener is the Orient Express, Pat Tanaka and Paul Diamond under a mask against the new foundation, Owen Hart and Jim the Anvil Neidhart. One thing I've noticed by, by early 1992, Bret Hart has outgrown the Hart Foundation, and now they're, they're putting together a new tag team. How long did they call Owen the Rocket? I think they did that up until his heel turn. I, I may be wrong. But uh, not much of a charismatic nickname for for Owen. No, and they didn't. He and Neidhart didn't tag for very long. Uh, Neidhart was actually fired a month later, and I thought he he looked pretty physically shot at this point. Yeah, that's funny. I mean, Neidhart had been with the WWF since uh, late 1984, and I mean that's a pretty long run. And you could tell this guy, you know, cardio. Wasn't always his priority. I for, I had forgotten he'd been fired, but you're right. Do you remember what he got fired for? Because I don't. He refused to take a drug test, and he threw a monitor at someone. <laughs> uh, he, mist- he mistook the monitor for an anvil, I'm sure, refusing to take yeah. a drug test. Okay. Yeah. Yeah. WWF had an interesting 1992, and I'm sure as... 2022 rolls on we'll we'll be talking more about that owen was phenomenal here and i thought this was a really good opener what did you think of this match i thought it went on too long i understand why they have matches like this because as people are you know getting into their seats they don't want to start you know they need some sort of a preliminary match like this but i thought 17 minutes was a little long for this match well, we had a, 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 actually, I didn't even feel like this match went on too long, unlike a couple of the subsequent matches. But yeah, Owen really came across to me during this match as a guy who was really pushable, and it took them a while to get on on track with that. But they they did right around like the end of nineteen ninety three. And you know, I'll be honest. I thought when Tanaka and Diamond, you know, I'm an old AWA guy. I thought that when they teamed as Bad Company, that they were really good. They were really good. I saw them when they first started teaming up in Memphis in early 1987, managed by Downtown Bruno. And I always liked Tanaka until like the like 93, 94 when he started getting heavy. Well, and the other thing is when they were in the AWA, they were managed by DDP who was bigger than either of them. I mean, D- that's one thing about wrestling. Like, I've always liked DDP. Supposedly, he's a really great guy, but he was always too big to be a manager. I mean, he towered over Pat Tanaka. Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. <laughs> All right. Well, and one thing I noticed about this match is I thought it was a really good, good for an opener, and they deliberately had good openers on pay-per-view because they had some rule where if you ordered it and called to cancel like 15 minutes into it, you could. And Monsoon and Heenan, who I thought did a really good job on this night, I'm not always as big a fan of that tag team as a lot of people are, but I thought they were at that on their best on this night. And they kind of used this match to put over the rest of the show. 
Yeah, I thought Heenan and Monsoon were phenomenal, and they carried they carried that through pretty much the entire uh, the entire show. I had a couple criticisms of Monsoon in particular that I'll get to as as we go on, but I thought I thought they were great. I thought it was just classic Heenan and, and Gorilla playing off each other. Yeah, I I agree. I thought this was one of their best performances. Now, next we see taped highlights from Bret Hart versus Jacques Rougeau, a.k.a. the Mountie, from Springfield, Massachusetts. I can only imagine what that place must have been like when they lit it up for television, because you know something's going to happen. Yeah, that was a house show, correct? Yes, it was, at the Springfield Civic Center. Okay. Yeah, so apparently, I looked this up, but it had something to do with Brett's contract negotiations that he dropped the belt there. Uh, yes, his contract was coming up with WWF, and he was talking to WCW. Okay. Was it just a matter of the Mountie just happened to be who he was wrestling that night, so they dropped it to him? Because he didn't really seem like he was, you know, in title contention, I guess. You know what? That's a good question. My guess is that he was a heel. He was kind of a mid-card heel at this point. And he was someone that you could have, you know, beat Brett under adverse circumstances, which we'll talk about in a minute. And, you know, he was a guy who you could put in the ring against Roddy Piper and do a completely clean job. Yeah, that's a good point. And remember, Heenan wrestled with 113 temperature. (laughs) They kept saying that Bret Hart had a, a temperature of 104 degrees and as yeah. soon as they said it the first time, I'm like, okay, did his dog die? And Chris, I think you're going to get that joke, but I'll share it yeah. with everyone else. <laughs> Kerry Von Erich had a, a, well, I don't know, I'm not sure if I should call it a classic match, but a memorable match against Ric Flair in 1985 when Kerry, now everyone listening to the show, when you hear the term in no condition to perform, right? That is a nice way of saying the dude was completely wasted. And from yep. what I heard, Kerry, his dog had died, and he was just out of it. They had to drag him out of the truck, to rest, his truck, to wrestle Ric Flair. No one had the common sense to say, okay, let's not do a one-hour draw tonight since Kerry can barely stand. And supposedly, you know, Rick lost it after the match, like threw the belt on the ground, screaming at everyone backstage. And it was so bad that they went on television and came up with the Kerry had a 105-degree fever story. Which You know it's bad if they acknowledge it on television. If you have a 105-degree fever, you're probably in the ICU. Yes. <laughs> Not in the ring wrestling the Mountie or Ric Flair. Yes. <laughs> so anyway, and they, I, I mean, they must have said this like 10 or 12 times that Brett had a, a high temperature. but against doctor's orders, insisted on going out there. So they're laying the groundwork, obviously, for Piper versus Hart at WrestleMania, which they actually did. And had Britt not re-signed, he, I'm, I'm guessing he would have done a clean job for Piper on the way out, but that's not the way it went. Right. Was this the only title Piper ever held in the WWF? Yes, it was. As a matter of fact, uh, you know, throughout the show, I mean, they, they had told us, that uh, well told us it was on tv the week before 
that Mountie had won the title. It was going to be Piper against Mountie at the Royal Rumble. And I'm like, wow, is Roddy Piper really going to win the Intercontinental Championship? I mean, he did. And it was his last title since he held the United States title back in the summer of 1983. Last title of any kind. Yep. And they, they did a kind of a surprise angle. You know, you've got uh, over the Saturday and, and the Sunday, you learn that uh, Brett has lost the title. And then on Sunday, you find out or you see that Piper has won the title. The WWF's business was going down and they were doing a lot of hot shotting right around this time. The other thing that kind of struck me about this is how nuts the fans were for Piper in this match. Yeah, and that's a good point. I mean, you know, Piper had been in the WWF at this point for almost nine years. As a matter of fact, over nine years. And he'd been a babyface since 1986. He'd been in and out of the promotion. But yeah, Springfield was red hot for Piper. Albany. (laughs) I'm sorry, Springfield. (laughs) Uh, My mind's all over the place. Yes, Albany, New York. But yeah, I mean, Piper finally wins a championship in the WWF. I'm, I'm glad it happened. All right, next up, we have the Bushwhackers against the Beverly Brothers. Chris, I absolutely loved the Beverlys, managed by Lanny Poffo, the genius. I thought it was hysterical. A lot of the time, people say, okay, who is a guy who should have been a way bigger star in the wrestling business? Wayne Bloom, in my opinion, should have been a a way bigger star. I thought he had the it factor. Yeah, I don't know why they kind of fizzled out. Um, That's another example of a team that started in the AWA, held the tag team titles kind of at the dying days of the promotion. But I always thought they were great. They were good in the ring, and I remember them in the AWA as the destruction crew. Then they went to the NWA under masks as the Minnesota Wrecking Crew, which didn't work out very well. And I just just love this gimmick. Uh, But one thing, I did not love this match. I'll I'll tell you right now. I mean, they did a heavy emphasis on the Bushwhackers being managed by a WWF creation named Jameson, who I almost forgotten about. He was like a over-the-top nerd character and it was supposed to be funny and really it wasn't and I'm, I'm surprised stuff like this didn't completely drive me away as a, a wrestling fan I mean if someone had shown me in 1982 that in 10 years this is what pro wrestling is going to be like I, I would have flipped out you know the Jameson character was originally brought in to be on what ended up being the very short-lived Bobby Heenan show I remember that Bobby asked him, how much moose do you use in your hair? And Jameson said a can and a half. And that was the one time Jameson made me laugh. Yeah, apparently they uh, Vince saw him perform comedy or something and thought he was funny and brought him in to see if he and Bobby would click. And Bobby absolutely loved the guy. I did not know that. I'm just picturing Vince McMahon at a comedy club in the early 90s. I know. Isn't that unreal? (laughs) Just picturing it and going, wow. Uh, Poor Vince wouldn't be left alone today. He probably wasn't left alone in the early 90s. But this match, I think, went, I mean, the whole thing went like 20 minutes with the the intro, the match, the finish. I I thought thought that took way too long. I I remember watching this in 92 and thinking that, oh, man, so far I do not like this pay-per-view. 
We did get a classic gorilla line about the external occipital protuberance, though. Gorilla never really appealed to me as a wrestler or an announcer, but I mean, I, I know I'm in the minority. I know a lot of people loved Gorilla Monsoon, but it, it, yeah, that's funny. Well, you know, I, I kind of felt the same way at the time, but he's grown on me. Just the combination of him and Heenan were just, they were so good. <laughs> I mean, I, I remember Brett Nicholas was on the show and he said Gorilla Monsoon was his comfort food. And I totally get that. Like, for a lot of people, he was the voice of their childhood. And I, I get that. Just for me, he was the voice of wrestling turning into something that I wasn't crazy about. You know, one thing, you know, I I never really liked Lanny Poffo. And I never really liked the genius character a whole lot. But the more I see him back then and when you see him today, it's uncanny how much he and Randy really looked and sounded alike. That is true, especially the sounded part. I mean, and you know, we're all about differing opinions here on Stick to Wrestling. I mean, when Lanny was just leaping Lanny Poffo, I did not like him. And then he's kind of did a subtle heel turn where his, his poems started getting heelish, and then he turned into the genius. And I feel like I know it kind of bombed, and I know a lot of people didn't like it, but I liked it from the start. I thought it was funny. I thought when Lanny was out there making eyes at Mr. Perfect, it just cracked me up. <laughs> I had forgotten about that. Yeah, and it worked with the Beverly Brothers. She was like the perfect manager for them, and I am surprised they didn't get over bigger. But, but like I said, this this whole match and the, the whole sequence to me just got a, a huge thumbs down. Oh, the Bushwhackers were just awful at that point. Just awful. But you know, it's I'm surprised Vince didn't do that more often where he takes the sheep herders, this crazy bloodthirsty team, and turns them into a comedy act. There were rumors that he was going to do that with Abdullah the Butcher. There was rumors he was going to do that with Ivan Koloff, and those never happened. And in a, in a way, I'm sorry they didn't. I, I had heard the Koloff story. I had never heard the Abdullah story. <laughs> They were going to bring him in in a speaking role as a babyface preacher from Atlanta. They, they talked about it. This was like 9091, and Abdullah decided he was ha making too much money in Japan. Oh, God. Yeah. That would have been something. <laughs> yeah, and like I said, I'm surprised McMahon you know, didn't do it more often. I mean, he, he completely changed Steve Kern and a few other people. But anyway, now we have the Legion of Doom, the Road Warriors. Or, well, they didn't call them the Road Warriors in the WWF, but against the natural disasters, Typhoon and the Earthquake. My take was that, number one, both teams really tried hard, but it still wasn't a good match at all. The one thing that really struck me is, you know, I remember when the Road Warriors debuted back in Georgia and then later in the AWA. And how massive they looked at the time. They were small compared to Earthquake and Typhoon. Those two men were massive. I mean, I agree with you. I remember seeing them for the first time in Georgia after Matt Bourne got fired and just being, you know, blown away by them. And you're right, you know, two massive guys. I was constantly asked in the late 80s, early 90s, when are the Road Warriors coming to the WWF? And, you know, they, they finally arrived. And, you know, my take was that, hey, when they get to the WWF, they're going to be just another tag team. 
tag team champions, but just another tag team nonetheless. That was a little bit wrong. They did main events in six mans, teaming with the Ultimate Warrior against the, the three demolition guys. But at this point, they are just another tag team. Yep. And, you know, going into this, I- I've always felt like Road Warrior Hawk, and I think I've said this on the show before, but it's probably been a couple of years. There's an alternative universe where he just breaks off from Animal and goes on a single run. And I think he would have been a, a superstar in that role just as Hawk uh, or Warrior Hawk or something like that. I mean, he had the charisma, and a lot of people forget he was a really good interview. Oh, yeah. They were both pretty good, but Hawk was definitely the more talented of the two. Yeah, I mean, Hawk was, I mean, the comparison that always gets made is Hawk was Lawrence Taylor, and Animal was just another guy, Harvey Carson, another linebacker for the Giants. Um. Yeah, I mean, I I know they did well on the with the tag team, but I mean, Hawk was phenomenal on interviews. I remember right after Baby Doll turned heel in 1986, and he's on TV saying the Road Warriors can go out and do whatever they want. We can go to the zoo and punch a gorilla. We can go to the zoo and punch an elephant. We can go to the zoo and punch Baby Doll. Oh, oh man. <laughs> Yeah, that probably wouldn't wouldn't be allowed today. <laughs> no, and Baby Doll, who I've interacted with on Twitter, no offense, I thought you looked great. But anyway, yeah, I mean, this was another bad match. And by this point, I mean, I remember in 92 thinking, all right, this is just another bad WWF pay-per-view, but things are about to make a quick turn. Yes. The 1992 Royal Rumble, let's talk about that. Ric Flair, in his book, talks about not knowing he was winning the WWF championship until he arrived at the arena on that night. And I'm not calling Rick a liar. I know that there are, as a matter of fact, Rick was one guy who didn't really pay too much attention to what was going on outside of his world. I mean, he and that's fine. He kept his eyes on his own paper. He just made his towns, wrestled his matches, and that was it. But I knew Ric Flair was winning the WWF champion, not suspected, but knew, like I had been told by people before they did the Survivor Series, where Hulk Hogan and Ultimate, uh, not Ultimate Warrior, The Undertaker, came out of it with the championship held up. Like I knew before Survivor Series, Flair was winning the championship on this night. Chris, what were your thoughts at the time? Like, as far as, you know, did you expect Rick to win the championship? I know you you said that you hadn't really been watching wrestling that much. Were, were you watching it all? I was watching some. I knew Flair had jumped to the WWF, and I was, since I was more of a WCW kind of guy after the AWA closed, I was very disappointed and a little bit surprised. But I figured they would have to put the title on him since he came in with the big gold belt and everything that was going on around that. I I figured eventually he would get the title, yes. You know, Ric Flair jumping to the WWF, um, I mean, everyone knew July 1991 that, you know, after he got fired from WCW, we all kind of knew where he was going to wind up. And strangely enough, as someone who was way more of a WCW fan than a WWF fan, I was looking forward to it, and I'm glad it happened. 30 years later, I'm glad it happened. We had this little detour in Ric Flair's career. Ric Flair is my favorite wrestler of all time, 
and we got to see him in a fresh environment against fresh opponents. The one thing that I, I was when I was talking about some things that would bug me about Monsoon on this pay-per-view is it was so telegraphed through the entire Rumble that Flair was going to win it. I actually, you know what? I, I, I neither agree nor disagree with that. I mean, Monsoon kept saying things like, you know, Flair drew number three, he's the third wrestler out, and Monsoon kept saying that, you know, no one who has drawn one, two, three, four, or five has ever won the Rumble, which, you know what, you're right, that kind of telegraphs that it's coming. Yeah, and I thought he did the same thing in the tag team title match, to go back a little bit, where he kept saying that the titles couldn't change hands on a disqualification. Well, that's just about telling people, hey, there's going to be a disqualification and the titles aren't going to change hands. Good point. He didn't mention that in any other match. <laughs> <laughs> that's a really good, you know, it reminds that this takes me back to when uh, the WWF was filing a lawsuit against WCW and Eric Bischoff kept challenging Vince McMahon, but he kept saying that, you know, Vince McMahon's not coming. Don't buy this pay-per-view because you want to see Vince McMahon because he's not coming. And believe it or not, this is this is a true story. As the WWF was filing this lawsuit, they said, literally, the lawyer said, in wrestling, if they say something's not going to happen, that means it's going to happen. Yeah, that's pretty much true. <laughs> I mean, they, this, is, this is a real lawsuit, not a not any yeah. kind of a storyline. Now, the WWF was usually really good about their stuff not getting out, their plans not getting out, obviously, aside from this one. But the rumor coming into this night was that Ric Flair would draw number 30. And by the time he got to the ring, all 29 of the other competitors would have eliminated each other. And Ric Flair was going to walk to the ring and just become WWF champion. I actually believe that was on the table. No, I believe that was the plan at one point, And the WWF got talked out of it. Chris, I'm, I'm sure you hadn't heard that. But I mean, what would you think of that? No, I hadn't heard it either. And I think it would have been a pretty bad idea if they wanted to get Flair over with a group of fans that may or may not have been as familiar with him. I mean, Flair wasn't your typical WWF cartoon character at the time. And I think having him kind of do the Iron Man deal where he had to, you know, fight through everyone for over an hour was a much better way to get him over and who he was. I could not agree more. I mean, I came into this believing that that was the plan. Um, I mean, you know, I'd been hearing it for a while and. I think they changed their minds, and I think it was the right move. I mean, they needed to get Ric Flair over strong, and they absolutely did get him over strong by having him draw number three and fight with everybody for over an hour, I believe it was, to win the championship. That was the right move. Yeah, I agree. One thing they did um, right before this, I'm going to say two weeks before this, they had the Rockers split up with the angle where Marty Jannetty gets super kicked by Shawn Michaels and he gets put through the window of the barber shop. And Marty Jannetty got knocked out of the Royal Rumble. I thought that was a smart move, putting over the split up of the Rockers. And yeah, yeah, that's pretty much it, putting over the angle. Yeah, it was. And uh, Jannetty got fired, right? 
not yet, but he was on his way, and he'd been fired more than once and, and would be again. But, yeah, it was coming pretty soon. Yeah, and, uh, you know, we got Nikolai Volkov in as a sub in the Rumble instead of Marty Jannetty, and who didn't want that? <laughs> oh, man, Volkov. Yeah, Volkov had pretty much been out of the WWF, I think, by this point in 92. I think he was gone, but. Yeah, exactly. No one, no, I mean, he'd been in the WWF since 1984. I mean, it was it was time for him to go home. Yeah, and the other sub in the Rumble was Haku, who had been on WWF for a while, who was subbing for Brian Nobbs, who had been stabbed in real life, although they yes. made it sound like it was an injury of some kind in the ring. Uh, no, actually, in Peoria, Illinois, he and uh, whichever one got, got knocked out, they got into a legit fight with someone and he got stabbed yeah it, no they had died but i don't think the wwf ever disclosed that he had actually been stabbed no the story i had read is that somebody had followed him and sags after the matches or something and tried to roll him and, and Nobbs got yeah Nobbs ended up in the hospital with stab wounds I remember that now. That's right. They were a victim of a mugging in Peoria, Illinois. And yes, they, they got stabbed. I, if you are a group of individuals running around looking to mug people, I'm not looking at the nasty boys. They had a reputation as being two legit tough guys in real life. Even if they didn't have the reputation, look at them. They couldn't be, you know, they're not someone who would be an easy mark to, you know, rob. No, I mean, you, you, I'm guessing, okay, well, pro wrestlers have money. Let's go after these guys. But, you know, if I'm in a gang or something, which I would never be, but I, I definitely would look at an easier target. These are two really big guys. Yeah. I mean, it's funny, too. They The Nasty Boys, their, their road to the WWF in uh, Halloween Havoc 1991, they had an outstanding match against uh, Rick and Scott Steiner where everyone was just stiffing the crap out of each other, and we were all blown away by it. And by that point, WCW was like, you know, no, we're not giving out contracts. You guys are going to be independent contractors. And the Nasty Boys kind of figured it out. It's like, okay, we have an impressive match to show the WWF. We don't have a contract, and we can get hired by them. Yeah, I always kind of liked the Nasty Boys. Uh, I know a lot of people don't. But I always thought they were kind of goofy and fun, but they did give kind of off that uh, kind of badass aura. Yeah, they did. They were two legit high school wrestlers. I Back in the 80s, no, back in 1990, the year before 1991, I knew a guy who grew up with them, and they did the, the, the gimmick where, you know, hey, if you invest in us, we'll give you like 10% of our earnings, you know, when we become big time pro wrestlers and they did this with like four people and of course none of them ever saw a cent oh of course not (laughs) (laughs) yeah they're legit from johnstown and this guy was from johnstown and he told me the story he said they were two really legit good amateur wrestlers this guy was a couple years younger than them and he was on the the wrestling team in johnstown as well and you know he he said oh yeah these guys were you know they were they were perfect for the wrestling business yeah, and that's kind of a hotbed of amateur wrestling, Pennsylvania, that area. So, I mean, if you were good enough to be one of the best in that era, you're probably pretty good. Yeah, in that era, Western Central Pennsylvania wrestling was really big. All right, my reaction in 1992, when I saw Ric Flair come out number three, I was stunned because, like I said, I was prepared for him to be number 30. 
And my jaw dropped. I'm like, wait a minute. Did they change the plan? Is he still winning this? And Chris, in your opinion, like, let's say Ric Flair didn't win this thing. Like, who else even would be a logical choice to put in that spot? I can't think of anyone. Are you asking whether who would have been a logical person to win it or to come in? Like, even if I didn't get the newsletters, like, I think I would have come into this knowing Ric Flair would win because who else could possibly win? Or, Or in your opinion, is there someone? Undertaker, maybe. I could see Undertaker. Uh, Savage, maybe. The one I was thinking of was Jake Roberts, just because, yeah, if you wanted to have a WrestleMania with Hulk Hogan versus Jake Roberts on top, you're automatically signaling that, okay, buy this pay-per-view because Hogan's going to win the championship again, even though they did that the year before. But I, I guess... My point is that there is a a big gap between my number one guy and my number two guy. Like, a Flair had to win. Oh, yeah, I agree. Yeah, and and Flair, like you said, I mean, a a lot of the WWF fans didn't know who he was. I mean, people I have known on the internet who are are a little bit younger than me were like, oh, oh my, you know, this old guy shows up and he's with Heenan and he's a little bit small and he, he was about to turn 43. I mean, he he needed a strong win, and he definitely got one. And Flair was he was so impressive on this night. I mean, just as far as like working, taking bumps, etc. I mean, I, I think this was Ric Flair night. Yeah, was uh, you know, Kurt Henning came to the ring with him. Was Henning out injured at this point? Yes, he was. He was injured and. Let me see. I believe he had back surgery like September, October of 1991. And I believe by this point, he had collected his Lloyd of London's insurance policy. So now he can't wrestle anymore. I I might have my dates crossed up, but I think he had cashed in by this point. Okay, that makes sense. And I noticed that when the match started or as the match went on, I should say, Everyone came to the ring and went right after Flair. Like, I'd forgotten that happened. Yep, that did happen. Him and Bulldog were fighting for quite a while there. And Davy Boy was just jacked to the gills at this point. I almost didn't even recognize him. Yeah, right around this point, I had heard that he was going to get a strong singles push, which didn't work out because he got let go because of the way he looked and um, on to WCW by the next year. But you're right, man, that guy, I mean, he was blown up in 86, 87, but now it's, I mean, he's at a whole new level. Oh, yeah, he's like Scott Steiner almost at this point. Good comparison with the bowling ball biceps. Um, Yeah. The Randy Savage-Jake Roberts feud is boiling over at this point, and I thought they did something interesting. Jake sees Savage coming after him. Uh, Excuse me, Savage sees Jake coming after him. Jake eliminates himself, and then Jake's like, aha, I outsmarted you, Randy Savage. And then Savage eliminates himself to go after Jake. Like, wow. Yeah, that that was pretty unique. One thing that kind of struck me, and it's always one of the morbid things about watching older wrestling matches and pay-per-views, is when you think about the number of guys who aren't with us anymore, Oh yeah, who would have thought that Jake would still be with us of this crew? 
that is a really good point. I mean, some of the guys who were supposed to be long, long gone are still with us, like Jake. And good for Jake, man. He, he oh yeah, he, he got himself together. Uh, I mean, superstar Billy Graham. I was around him thirty years ago. He couldn't get around without a walker. Well, guess who's still here? Superstar Billy Graham. I mean, yep. Hogan. Let's be honest. I mean, he. You know. I mean, how much, how many steroids must he have in, ingested? So, yeah, a lot of guys who you would think wouldn't be around are around and vice versa. The Iron Sheik. Oh, another good one. Oh, man. <laughs> he had that huge stomach in 1983, and I don't think it's gone anywhere. Yeah. So we have the end of the match. It's Flair, Hogan, and Sid at the end. And Hogan gets eliminated, and then from the outside of the ring, he pulls Sid out of the ring, and you could hear the boos for Hogan on television. I know someone who went to this event, and I should have gone with him, and they were like, oh, you know, the boos on TV did not do it justice. The crowd had absolutely turned on Hogan. Yep, and I thought when I was reading up on some synopsis of, of the Rumble, I believe that they had Heenan and Monsoon record a new commentary for the Coliseum video for the end of the match. Oh, wow. Okay. Wow. That, that's doesn't, it's, I didn't know that, but it doesn't surprise me. And, you know, someone asked on our Facebook group earlier today, I think it was like, was this the first time that Hogan ever got booed? And as far as I know, yes, it was. He'd been with the WWF now, for eight years and and maybe he was just wearing off but the fans were on this night more into sid than hogan and they carried out sid's heel turn anyway yeah and this was after hogan had gotten into the trouble with uh, uh his comments on what was it the arsenio hall show and he made himself look like a complete ass with the whole steroid thing yeah, I, I believe he said he took them once under a doctor's care after knee surgery, and that was the only time he had ever used them. Right. <laughs> you know, it's it's one of those things. I mean, I remember watching it on Arsenio Hall, and you know, just being like, "Yeah, right, Hogan, whatever." Because I'm I was used to the idea of, of wrestlers taking steroids. Well, I guess the rest of the world was not on the same plane as I was because when that got out it started to generate all kinds of problems for Hulk Hogan and everyone around him. And as 1992 rolled on, I mean, the WWF was in a lot of trouble. I mean, this might have been, now I would go with WrestleMania eight as, you know, the night before like the WWF really started to fall off. But I mean, there were signs of trouble here. Yeah. I think the other thing with Hogan isn't so much that, he used steroids is that he tried to basically make people look like fools by telling such a ridiculous lie. <laughs> yeah. Um, I remember, and this was like 20 years ago, I read some book that was supposedly really underground about steroid use. And they were saying the number one thing is don't ever admit you're using them no matter what. So maybe that was just the, the Hulk Hogan credo, but, well, let me ask you this, Chris. If you're Hulk Hogan on Arsenio Hall, and Arsenio is like, you know, Hulk, are, have you been using steroids? I mean, what do you say? You know, I mean, if you oh, say yes, 
you're you're admitting you're committing a crime, you know, and all kinds of other stuff. So I mean, it's almost like you know, you almost have to make up a story. And I'm not advocating that. I'm just, you know, what's the alternative, really? At that point in time, I honestly don't know because he was, you know, he was portrayed as a superhero. The say your prayers, take your vitamins, not take your steroids. Yeah. I don't know what you would say. I mean, it's because if you look at like someone like years later, Andy Pettit, during the whole baseball steroid scandals, people kind of forgave him because he came right out and admitted it. Whereas people didn't forgive a lot of those other guys. That's a really good point. Now, now that I'm thinking about it, if I'm Hogan, I would say, you know, yeah, I used them. They were legal at the time, and I was under a doctor's care, and I, I used them minimally just to bounce back from my workouts. And now that they're illegal, I, I as soon as they became illegal, I stopped using them. Like, that's what I might have gone with. That's probably as good as you could get. Yeah, yeah. I'd say that's as good as you could get. And, and, and you know, oh. I was unaware of the dangers of using steroids, but now that I'm aware, nah, 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 nah. I think that might have been the road to go down, but he got caught. Yep. One thing, too, I, I noticed that Sid was noticeably taller than Hogan, which means yes. that you have to build Sid as not six foot nine, but like six foot 11. Like if Hulk Hogan's been six foot eight all this time and Sid towers over him, that's an adjustment you have to make. How tall was Hogan legitimately? I think he was legit 6'5", uh, which is a big guy. Yeah. I'm thinking six. I'm thinking 6'4", but closer to 6'5", and it's wrestling, so they always exaggerate everything. That's just the way it is. Right. I will never forget that moment. And again, Ric Flair is my favorite wrestler of all time, and he is now WWF champion. He is backstage doing an interview with with Gene Okerlund, with Bobby Heenan and and Kurt Henning with him. And just, I mean, what a moment that was. Not just for me, but I think for wrestling history, Ric Flair has done it. He is at the top of the WWF mountain after all of these years, after being, you know, NWA and WCW champion for so long. And now he's the first man to ever hold both belts. And that, that would be less of a common thing as, as time went on. But just seeing him with the title and just seeing, wow, he made it. They pushed him. He, he did it. He did it in the WWF. I mean, what a moment that was. Yeah. The other thing, it, was, it felt surreal, to be honest, because I it mean, did. you would just see him. You had seen him with either the 10 pounds of gold or the the big gold belt for so long. And then to see him holding the, the WWF title, it just it felt weird. It did because that was Hogan's title. In my mind, that was Hogan's title. And there's Ric Flair with it. And you're right. It was surreal. And it, it was such a great moment. I absolutely loved it. And I mean, Rick. Rick deserved it, and like no one else never, ever deserved it, in my opinion. Yep. And then we also got treated to the famous mean gene line, put that cigarette out during the <laughs> interview. Uh, you know, I, I, I've said this before. I did not like Gene Okerlund when he was with the WWF, and I, I have grown to appreciate him more and more over time. Yeah, see, I grew up with Gene, so I oh, always right. loved 
him. I've always thought he was just absolutely wonderful at his job. From the beginning to the very end of his career, I, I love Gene Okerlund. <laughs> you know, he came every time I saw Gene, like later in his life, every time I saw him, I'm like, man, Gene looks good. And then, you know, I, a year after the last time I saw him, he died. And I was like, oh, man, that sucks because he aged very gracefully. He did. But I think part of that is, you know, guys like him or Dory Funk Jr. who lost their hair so young. You know, you didn't see that gradual change. <laughs> no, you didn't. As a matter of fact, I remember uh, during the Zaharian trial, uh, one of the things that we learned that Zaharian had given prescriptions for was Gene Okerlund getting, uh, oh, what was the name of that stuff everyone was use- using 20 years ago for male pattern baldness? Rogaine. Yes. So even with the Rogaine, he wasn't having a lot of luck. But anyway... I found something that I thought was pretty cool. Norman Connors from Pittsburgh, Pennsylvania, 30 years ago, noted that there were 21 wrestlers Flair sold for, and he sold a total of 379 moves, 80 for Piper, 55 for Hogan, 38 for Santana, 30 for Duggan, 27 for the British Bulldog, 26 for Kerry Von Erich, 25 for Greg Valentine, 16 for Hercules, 10 for Big Boss Man, and 9 for Undertaker. Norman, wherever you are, thank you for that research. Boy, and you thought I took a lot of notes. (laughs) All right. We took a couple of questions from the Facebook group regarding this show. One of them we already kind of answered, which was, you know, if you're not, uh, Rob Rose says, let's say for whatever reason you're not going with Flair, Hogan, Sid, who do you go with? I said, Jake, who, who? If you had to go way out of the box, Chris, who would you have taken to win this? If I was going to go way out of the box, I almost would have considered, well, if depending on how stable Kerry was, I think he might have been a good choice. He looked pretty good here. And I also thought it was really fun to see him and Flair square off right away when Kerry got into the match. I did too. Because of obviously knowing the history between the two. Yeah. Another one that you maybe could have considered if it was going to be one of those situations where they were going to take the belt off of him at WrestleMania would have been Rick Martel. I have always been a huge Rick Martel fan, and I loved the model gimmick. Yep. And they were talking him up a ton during the match about how long he had stayed in the Rumble the year before. Yeah, that's a really good point. And you're right. In wrestling, they're kind of tell you know, they tend to telegraph a lot of things just like that. All right. Sonny Martinez, who has been a guest on the show and will be again. If you were booking a new Hogan and Flair would be the main event at WrestleMania 8. Do you change the finish of the Rumble? Hogan screwing Sid because Hulk's a heel doesn't make a lot of sense if that's your destination. I what are your thoughts on this? I kind of found this question a little bit confusing, to be honest, John, because Hogan and Flair was not the main event of WrestleMania 8, correct? It was not. Um, It was scheduled to be at one point, and the WWF was scrambling a bit at this point and made the decision to put the title on Randy Savage uh, again. Yeah, I don't know. Yeah, I I guess I I struggle with this one. I don't really know how to answer this one. What's your thought? Well, I agree that Hogan screwing Sid was a bad idea. If you want to 
have Hulk Hogan remain a strong baby face. I mean, Sid didn't do anything wrong. It's every man for himself. Well, he eliminated Hogan, and, you know, Hogan kind of backstabbed him a little bit. But, you know, I, I, I get it that if you've already decided that you're going with Flair versus Savage, with Savage winning the belt, that your second best match is Hogan versus uh, Sid. And there was a rumor that Sid, who had come to the WWF less than a year ago after turning down being the WCW, not only their world heavyweight champion, but the guy that they were going to build around, Supposedly, the rumor was that he was guaranteed the main event at WrestleMania, and that's why Hogan and Sid ultimately went on last. And, you know, you fulfilled that requirement of Sid, you know, getting in the main event. But in my opinion, they should have stuck with Hogan and Flair. I mean, even though they had run that match, you know, in pretty much every WWF city, it's still the dream match. I mean, you know, that's what you want for WrestleMania, especially yeah. with Hogan as, as challenger. Yeah, I agree. That's why it was so surprising that that wasn't ever a main event of WrestleMania. No, I mean, to me, that is the strongest main event they could do. And I, I think, I mean, I understand. Well, another thing too, Hogan was doing a movie that summer, so you really can't put the belt on him. And I, I don't think. Hulk is going to do the favor for Ric Flair at WrestleMania. No way. No. Let me see. Matt Mann asks, if you could replace the Nasty Boys with outside talent, who would you have booked? Do you have any any ideas on this, Chris? Yeah, I actually looked into this a little bit. I looked at some WCW results of the time, and there's really only one answer, and that only one answer would be the Steiners. Oh, wow. There's nobody else out there. Yeah, WCW was big on keeping the Steiners, especially around this time when they were, uh, this was right before Bill Watts came in. So, I mean, I know they made keeping Rick and Scott happy a priority, at least for about another year when when Scott decided that he didn't want to listen to Bill Watts. But I went with an outside the the box pick. when that, The first time I saw the Pitbulls, on an indie show in 92, I was very impressed with them. And I mean, obviously they're available and I would have gone with them. Oh, wow. I didn't even think about about indie stars at that time or indie performers, I guess stars and <laughs> really don't make a lot of sense describing them that way at that point. In time. No. But, oh yeah. I never thought about that. I don't know if there were any other kind of, kind of teams in the whole Eastern Championship Wrestling kind of that orbit that would have fit the bill like the Pitbulls. I couldn't think of anyone like in Dallas or anything like that. No, I, I couldn't either. Um, was Harlem Heat together yet? I, I don't think so. I think they started in 93, but I could be wrong. Yeah, I don't think so either. Okay. All right, Ryan Damon asks, is it the best performance by an announced team ever with Heenan going nuts and Monsoon trying to egg him on. Your thoughts, Chris? Well, I don't know if it's the best performance by an announced team ever, but it is one of the classic Heenan-Monsoon performances. And I, I talked about that at the beginning. Yeah, it, it, I, I liked it. I mean, like Ryan said, I mean, Monsoon's just egging Heenan on and Heenan's going nuts and Heenan's actually apologizing, saying, I'm sorry, I, I can't be... Uh, neutral on this. I, I I have to root for Ric Flair. 
and just having Keenan going on a an hour and ten minute you know panic attack was was quite entertaining to me. Keenan was actually losing his voice about halfway through the rumble. He was. All right, Ted Henschel asks, is this the biggest win for Flair since him winning his first NWA championship? What do you think, Chris? No, no. I think Starcade 83 was a much bigger deal. Okay, I can see that. Because Flair's first title win was in Kansas City in front of nobody. Yeah. I mean, it was a big deal, but you're right. Starcade might have been a bigger deal. I'm, you know what? In my opinion, this was the biggest win for Ric Flair. And I, I really think that because whenever anyone talked about you know, Ric Flair going to the WWF, like I never thought he would win the WWF championship. And let's face it, the NWA championship was huge in the, the early 1980s. It was the biggest title in wrestling. But now you're looking at the WWF this giant international company that has their TV around the globe and, you know, is, is clearly number one. And I, I really thought this was a big trade up for flair, especially considering that, you know, like if you're a, a quote unquote smart fan or you're a super casual fan, you had to notice that flair made this match. Oh yeah, Absolutely. And I think you make a really good point, too, about it being the the biggest win of his career since to most people, especially at that time, because WCW was terrible. uh, The WWF was synonymous with with pro wrestling at the time. Yeah. And like, and, you know, a lot of people thought that if when Flair ever went to the WWF, I mean, I I had people who really knew their stuff in wrestling say, yeah, he's going to be like intercontinental championship level. And just, you know, again, that moment where there he is with Hogan's title, it, it meant a lot to me, and I think it meant a lot to, to pro wrestling in general. And finally, Michael Armstrong asks, was this the event that Vince finally realized he could let Hulk Hogan go following the, the reaction Undertaker got from winning the title at Survivor Series 91? Surely this must have reinforced the fact that Hogan was stale when he eliminated Sid and they booed him out of the building. Chris, your thoughts? Uh, yeah, I think there's probably a real good chance that that's, uh, that's maybe spurred Vince on to thinking about going in a different direction, which he you know, did through most of the 90s. Yeah, I think that's a, I think that's a pretty good statement to make. I, I, I disagree a little bit, and I'll tell you why. Because as soon as Vince could bring Hogan back as WWF champion in 1993. He did bring him back as champion. Um, And if you think about it, you know, a lot of people talked about in in the 80s, early 90s, okay, who's going to be the next Hulk Hogan? And the answer, as it all turns out, was there wasn't going to be another Hulk Hogan. This was a -a once-in-a-lifetime guy. And even if He's not 1984 Hulk Hogan anymore. I mean, in early 1992, I still think Hulk Hogan was the WWF's best bet as their top superstar. Obviously, by the end of 93, that was no longer the case. But, you know, you're still wondering, like, I was still wondering, okay, if not Hogan, who, you know? Yeah, Hogan still had uh, enough of that superhero aura, but I think you started to see it. See it really start to decline a little bit. 
What was his last WWF reign before he jumped? Was it losing to uh, Yokozuna? Yes, it was. Okay. Yeah. They, they, yeah, he lost to Yokozuna. I don't, I don't even remember. I don't think, I don't think it was a pay-per-view. I think it was a house show. If, if, I, I could be wrong about that. But anyway, yeah, 1992 Royal Rumble, 30 years ago. Wow, time flies. And I hope everyone enjoyed the show. Chris, thank you for coming on. You were a great guest. Oh, thank you so much. I was a little nervous at first, but I felt better as it went on. <laughs> I'm, I'm good. Glad to hear that. And we'll have you back. And I want to thank everyone for listening. We'll have another hopefully great show next week. And I want to once again thank our producer, Lou Kippelman, for all the great work he does. Believe me, the show sounds a lot better after he gets done with it. And this has been a production of the Arcadian Vanguard Podcast Network. We'll see you next week. This concludes our podcast day.